considered the birth of Jesus Christ and the fact that it took place in a very specific way. As a matter of fact, Matthew says it took place in this way, the way that is according to what was written by the prophets. Likewise, the ministry of Jesus Christ began in this way, according to what was written by the prophets. Specifically, the return of a prophet to Israel. Nonetheless, than John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, it says that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John's ministry came onto the scene like a whirlwind of fire. The man was so conventional, he was unconventional. He lived in the wilderness by the Dead Sea where the Jordan enters in. He wore a coat of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate a diet of locust and honey and he came preaching with authority. Denouncing sin, even that of kings with the message to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in spite of his kind of rough demeanor and his very blunt and authoritative message, people flock to him, being baptized at the mouth of the Jordan, so much so that the powers that be at the time had no choice but to pay attention. They came seeking who he was. Tell me, who are you? For he was certainly more than the son of Zechariah. In John chapter 1 and verses 19 through 23, it says that this is the testimony of John. That when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed that I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those that sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. And so when put to the task, John denies that he is the Christ. He says he's not Elijah, that that he's not the prophet, but instead he is the one that Isaiah spoke of, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord, except for the fact of the matter is, is he shouldn't be, as we've looked over the last two weeks. This is not what Isaiah's prophecy says. Isaiah doesn't say there would be one crying out in the wilderness to make straight the paths of the Lord. Instead, Isaiah said there would be one crying for you to go out into the wilderness and make straight the paths of the Lord. Isaiah's prophecy speaks of a general voice crying to prepare the way of the Lord in a specific place in the wilderness. 
But John is a very specific voice in the wilderness crying to prepare the way of the Lord generally for all peoples. All of the nation's eye is searching for Elijah. And with good cause, the very last prophecy that was given in the Old Testament before the Word of God became silent to mankind for 400 years was this. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The nation's eye searches for Elisha because they know from the prophet that if they are going to see their Messiah and King, Elisha must come first. After all, Elisha is one of only two men in all of recorded history that did not die. At least not yet. And so when it comes to his identity, particularly concerning is he Elisha, John says unequivocally that he is not Elisha. So there's the testimony from John's own lips. We read it in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. When put to the task, they said, John, John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, I am not Elijah. It's a true statement. He's not Elijah. He's John, son of Zechariah. And yet, as we saw last week, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus says he is Elijah. True statement. For God does not lie. So you have John saying, I'm not Elijah. True statement. He's John. I mean, he ought to know. Jesus saying, He is Elijah. True statement. He's God. Immediately after the transfiguration, um, and, and you know, the, the irony and the, um, uh, what do you call it, the shtick here, gets pretty thick. I mean, what Jesus is about to say about John and Elijah happens immediately after the transfiguration, at which Elijah was bodily present, Right? They've just been on the mountain. They've just seen the spirit of Moses. They've just seen Elijah in the flesh. They've just seen the glory of Christ with his face shining like the sun. They're still completely rattled. They're not over it yet. And they're coming down the mountain. And it says that as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples ask him, why do the scribes say that First, Elijah must come, and he answered. And he said this, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But 
I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. And so here's what Jesus says after having the... uh, You know, after having kind of the the gathering of the minds here on top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses and Elijah in the flesh and Peter, James, and John, and they're coming down the hill and Jesus says this. He says, Elijah does come. He's coming. And Elijah has come. Speaking of John. We looked at this last week and we said, man, is is Christ losing it? Is this a self-contradiction? Is Scripture schizophrenic, saying both yes and no at the same time? And of course, the answer to that is absolutely not. Jesus qualifies what he means in Matthew chapter 11 when he says he is Elisha, if you're willing to accept it. Matthew chapter 11 Verses 7 through 15. I want to remind you where we were last week. Jesus says this. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, and yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is not schizophrenic. He's not saying both yes and no at the same time. He is saying that Elisha will come and Elisha has come. Speaking of John, and in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15, he puts it this way. He says, he is Elijah if you will accept it. You'll accept it. He is the Elijah that is to come. He is pleading with them. For if you understand the prophecies about Elijah coming first and turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers and restoring all things, he is the forerunner that comes before the Christ, making straight his paths. If you accept Elisha, the forerunning prophet, then that means you will be accepting of Christ, the prophet he is proclaiming. 
If you accept John, you will accept Jesus as who he is. If you accept John as the Elisha that he is, you will accept Christ for the Messiah that he is. He is not putting a prerequisite on the nature of John's being that is based on their opinion. He's not saying somehow that if you accept he's Elijah, he magically becomes Elijah. What he's saying is, is he is Elijah, and if you will accept it, you will accept me. He's pleading with them. If you will just accept what is before you, then you will know not only the prophet, but you will know the one that he proclaims, and yet they would not accept it. This is Jesus' judgment of them. In verse 16, he continues and says, To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What Jesus is saying is that As far as this generation is concerned, I can't get anything out of you. I come speaking things of gladness and joy and you won't respond in gladness and joy. I come speaking things of judgment and destruction and you won't mourn. You're just flat and indifferent, lukewarm, that I might spit you out of my mouth. They would not accept the Christ. They would not accept his forerunning prophet that was telling them that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was time to make straight the path of his coming through repentance. They wouldn't do it. The question is, is will we? You see, the relationship that exists between John and Elisha and John being Elijah is more than a nifty sermon. It's more than an interesting curl in scripture and a piece of doctrine and theology that maybe you hadn't understood before. And the reason it's more than that is because what God is doing with Elisha and John is not finished yet. God is not yet done with Elijah. Now, that's where we finished up last week. And so considering all of these things, what you will often hear, if you've got one of those Bibles, you know, that has the line across the middle of the page and somebody's opinion about what's what's going on with the inspired Word of God that's above the line and the opinion below the line, what you'll often see kind of below the line, if they even speak to this subject at all, is that what you see here is what is known kind of in theological circles is a typology. And this is a common approach to to dealing with the relationship between John and Elisha and all the things that Jesus says about him. And so what they say is is that John is a, a type of Elisha. That is to say he's he's playing a role. That's similar to the role that Elisha played, that he's giving a testimony, if you will. And to be fair, Scripture is full of typology, full of it. 
I mean, there, there is typology in Scripture from one end to the other. Probably the prime example that we see in the New Testament is the typology of Christ that we see in Adam. It's the easiest for me to do as kind of a proof text this morning because Paul explains it in detail in Romans chapter 9. Or I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 5. And so in Romans chapter 5, talking about typology where you have one person that is, that is playing a role, giving a testimony of a future person or a future reality to come that's actually going to be much bigger than the testimony that's being given. No better place to look than Adam giving the testimony of Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes and says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And so here's Adam, and he is not Christ, but he is a type, a typology. He's a a picture, he's a testimony of Christ who is to come. And you go, well, man, What kind of testimony was Adam to Christ? Adam was an anti-type. You see, when it comes to typology, there are basically two main categories. There's antitype and there's archetype. Archetype looks like the reality that's to come. Antitype is the negative of the reality that is to come. And so here you have two individuals, Adam and Christ. And in some way, both hold headship over the entirety of mankind. Adam being the father of all men, Christ being the creator and the firstborn among all men. And so, Christ is seen in Adam in the inversion. It's like looking at a photo. And for those of you that are old enough to still remember actual film cameras, looking at the photo negative. Paul explains it this way. Chapter 5, verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here's your typology. It's Adam and Christ, and Adam is the antitype of Christ. They both have headship over all of mankind, but what Adam did brought death, and what Christ did brought life. You want to understand what Christ is doing? Look at what Adam did, and Christ is doing the opposite. 
But Scripture is also full of archetypes. Scripture is also full of men, particularly when it concerns Christ, that did specific things in their ministry that would point to the ministry of Jesus. We could look at guys like Joseph and Joshua and David and Hosea. All of these men were called, according to the Spirit, to do things and to be things that would point to who Christ would be. And so, the mass majority of time when you look at Elijah and you look at John, and John's going, I'm not Elijah, and Jesus is going, he is Elijah. Man, it's an easy box to check. Typology. And then you can just move on. John's testifying to what Elijah did. Testifying to what Elijah will do when he returns. Only problem is, is that from a doctrinal standpoint is full frontal failure. John is not an archetype of Elijah. How do we know? Because, you know, honestly, if, if you're going to swim against the current of mainstream doctrine, you need to be able to back your play. How do we know? We know from the highest accredited source, a source that cannot be assailed. We know that John is not simply an archetype of Elisha because of the words of Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 14, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, remember, and you can look if you want, you can flip back over there. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus said, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is him. He's not like him. He's not testifying to him. He is him. As a matter of fact, the statement in the Greek is actually a lot stronger than it comes across in the English. Oh, the good old editors of the ESV, bless their heart, I love them. Every now and then, they like to leave out some words that are in the Greek that they really should leave in. In chapter 11, verse 14, they decided in the rendering of the English to admit the direct or the definite article, the Greek word ho, which would be the English word the. Which gets us, you know what the direct article does, don't you? Grammatically, it removes wiggle room. It forces you into a very defined, particular, and finite understanding about what's going on. And we've, good folks at Wheaton, conveniently left it out here. We'll give them a pass on this one, I guess, because they really don't care what Mount Zion thinks, right? You want the raw Greek with the direct article, with the definite article, with the ho in the right place? Here it is. If you were willing to accept, I'm sorry, raw Greek, and if willing accept, he is Elijah, the one about to come. 
not, and if willing to accept, he is Elijah, like the one about to come. No, and if willing to accept, he is Elijah, the one about to come. Man, the Greek grammar brings us to a place where Jesus is saying, John the Baptist and the return of the prophet Elijah who was caught up in a whirlwind of fire, this guy right here that's been down in the wilderness making straight the path of the Lord is that guy. Hmm. And if willing, except he is Elijah. The clause here, the way, the way the primary and the secondary clause work, John being Elijah is not predicated on men's acceptance. He doesn't become that. He is the one about to come. Instead, men responding to his message is predicated on their acceptance. This is what he is. If you will just accept it, then you will accept the message of the Christ that he is speaking about. And in doing so, your souls will be saved. And so if you read that in isolation, so, so you, know, you know how people do, man. You, you, the truth is, is definite and there's error all around it. And so we see one error and we have a tendency to run away from that error because we don't want to be wrong because being wrong always has consequences. So, so we see this one error, and it may be a common error, like, for instance, John is a typology of Elisha, and we go, okay, that's not right. Jesus says he is Elijah. And so we run away from the error, and if we're not careful, we'll run right past the truth and into more error. And you've got to be careful because you can do that right here. So you see with your own eyes in the Word of God that John is not a typology. He is Elijah, the one who is about to come. And you go, okay, he's not a typology. Then I guess, this is what, this gets dangerous right here when you start using the human mind to interpret Scripture instead of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. And you go, so... I guess John must actually kind of be Elisha incognito, right? It's like that boss goes to work TV show, you know, where they take the CEO and they and get him some get him some Cintas clothes and a name tag that says Carl. They put him down there flipping switches on the line and pushing buttons, you know. Nobody knows who he is. He's really the boss, but nobody knows. It's a secret. Is this just, is John just Elijah in disguise? No. Elijah was taken up to heaven a full-grown man. John was born by miraculous birth at the foretelling of Gabriel, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. John is not Elijah in disguise. John is John. And John is Elijah, the one who is about to come. You know, how in the world can both those things be? I love it, man. I love it. I love when you see what is apparent contradiction in Scripture, 
Because every time you see apparent contradiction in Scripture and you are patient and faithful in the Lord, trusting in the Holy Spirit and trusting in His Word and just stay after it like a dog on a bone, what you will eventually come to is the glory of God on display. And so here it is. In Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel is proclaiming the prophecy of his birth to his father. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 13, it says that the angel said to him, he's speaking to Zechariah, he's in here in the temple burning incense, going about his priestly duties. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He will come forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah going before the Lord. And you go, aha! You see? He is a typology. He is a type of Elijah. Nope. No, he's not. Jesus says he is Elijah. The one who is about to come. And you go, yeah, but (laughs) Elijah had been caught up to heaven. As a matter of fact, when this is being written... Elijah's, you know, sitting there counting. I don't know how long 30 years is experienced like in heaven, but, uh, you know, Elijah's up there counting down the clock for the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah's a full-grown man. He's in heaven. He's speaking of an infant that is miraculously born in Elizabeth's old age who is coming forth in the spirit of Elijah. Come on, preacher. He's coming forth in the spirit of Elijah. He's not actually Elijah. He just has the spirit of Elijah. When we say that, we betray our own foolish, shallow thinking. We betray a mind that has not yet been conformed to the mind of Christ, that is still thinking, well... It's men of dust with minds of highly organized dust thinking small, little, dusty thoughts. When what we're dealing with is the grandeur and glory of the eternal kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. Though men, and unfortunately, oftentimes Christians... And theologians and pastors. Unfortunately, though, often we don't think this way. 
Scripture holds the concept of spirit in primacy over the flesh. Doesn't hold it to be secondary to the flesh. It holds it to be superior to the flesh. And what we're seeing with John and Elisha is, and the misunderstanding that often occurs with men regarding these two is what happens when heavenly realities are perceived through dusty lenses. Look in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. In the Gospel of John in chapter 6, I think this is a great place to go because it uses something that we're all very familiar with to, to make the point. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, this is one of the great I am statements of the Gospel of John, and this is I am the bread of life. And so here's Jesus explaining his nature to the people. Some of them are his people, and some of them think they're his people, but aren't. And they're about to find out the hard way that they aren't when they are offended at who Christ is. And so in John chapter 6, in verse 48 through 59, in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, at this point in time, most people are still on board. Oh, Jesus is using an analogy. Isn't that a smart way to teach? Right, let's take an analogy. Because that way we can take something that people understand and we can connect it to a bigger idea that maybe they don't. And by understanding what bread is and that you need it for nourishment and bodily life, then they can understand what's really going on with the bigger spiritual reality. Problem is, is that is not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is condescending a reality that men are not able to grasp in their current fallen state to a place where they can. And it doesn't translate well for them. You see a lot of stuff that says the bread of life on it. You get your Jesus junk online or at the Bible bookstore. You can even find you a you can even find you one of them bread close things that says bread of life on it. You never find one that says the rest of what Jesus says next. If you don't preach the bread of life sermon and offend people, you didn't preach it the way Jesus preached it. He ran off 25,000 people in a day with one sermon. This way said, The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. And whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Okay, buddy, whatever he's talking about, it's not an analogy. This deal just hit a different gear. Jesus is talking about some crazy stuff, feeding on his flesh, drinking on his blood. Now here you're going to have a group of Pharisees and they're going to realize that they're in error. He's not simply talking about an analogy. He's talking about something that is real. And so here they go running away from one error directly into another and they think he's talking about cannibalism. When actually he's talking about the nature of reality of flesh and blood and being that is not temporal but eternal. Something bigger than them, something bigger than me, something bigger than you, something bigger than us. He speaks to them about what is really real. This is a concept we've explored several times at Mount Zion over the years. There are things that are real like this pulpit and this body of flesh and bone but they're not really real. They're temporal. There was a time when they didn't exist. There was a time when the matter that they are made up of did not exist in any way and God spoke it into being and there is a time coming when he will speak it out of existence and it will be gone. But there are things that are really real that are not temporal but eternal. Things that have always been like the flesh and the blood of Christ that he is speaking about, not the flesh that came with the incarnation, but the nature of his being that will bring forth in you a nature of being that is also eternal. He speaks about what is really real in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who He knew from the beginning those who who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. It is the Spirit that brings life. The flesh counts for nothing. Counts for nothing. We are so tied to this temporal and fleshly world that we must discipline ourselves to think in a spiritual way according to the Word of God. But Christ doesn't have to discipline Himself in that way. That is the way he thinks because that is who he is. And he's constantly reminding his disciples, he's constantly reminding his people of this very fact. It is the spirit that brings life. 
The flesh counts for nothing. So when we look at the prophecy about John, and it says that he will go forth before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and we foo-foo that and go, well, he's just an archetype because, I mean, he's not actually Elijah. He's just coming in the spirit of Elijah. Friends, the spirit is more defining than the flesh. It's the foundational reality of being. It is what determines the difference between alive and dead. Shame on us. Shame on us that we would find ourselves going, oh, well, it's just the spirit of Elijah. You understand what Gabriel is saying? You think it matters that John's eyes are a different color than Elisha's? You think it matters that his hair is the same or different or similar? Do do you think any of that matters? You know what matters? You know what the difference between life and death is? Is the primacy of the Spirit. Belief is not the only thing granted to us by the Father. The Father has seen fit to ordain in His divine purpose... Not only those whom he would call to the Son, as Jesus just said, but the manner in which they would be called and the ministry, the position that they would function in within the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 4 through 11, the Apostle Paul talks about it this way. In chapter 12, verse 4, he says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. Now, the exegesis can get very complex here, but we're going to keep it simple today. Basically, what Paul teaches is this, is God does not have a generalized plan for his kingdom, that this king is very specific in what he ordains, down to the particular role that each of his children is supposed to play. And he is going to gift you with something in the Spirit that was not yours before you were born again. Don't think for a moment that your spiritual gift is your talent. You were born with talent. You receive a spiritual gift when you were born again. So if you think you can set on your laurels, because you know what your spiritual gift is, because you've had it all your life, you need to go back to the drawing board and keep looking. He equips the saints specifically for the role that he has them to play, and he doesn't equip everybody the same. He apportions as he pleases. Some people are more spiritually gifted than others. That doesn't seem very affirming. Take it up with the guy that gives it. Sometimes this gifting 
goes so far as to delineate a particular office. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. He gifts of the Spirit to all of his children, but there are some that he gifts unto an office. The apostles and the prophets, the teachers, and the pastors. What you see with Elijah and John is a very particular gifting unto the office of prophet not just a general one but a specific one apportioning to each as he sees fit and this apportioning is not general it is particular even within the office of prophet creating me and jamie we're talking this week trying to throw around some terms that you can use to get your mind wrapped around this thing the term avatar came to mind but that didn't really work jamie said prophetic mantle which i think is probably a pretty good stab but boy it makes you sound awful high-minded so how about we go with this that the gifting of god is a portion to each not just generally but specifically even within a particular office so that we see here a spirit upon Elijah and a spirit upon John that is a very particular class of prophet. I think it kind of works like this. You know, when when the U.S. Navy comes out with a when it comes out with a new class of ship, whatever that class may be. The class, they're, they're, they, they, they are all designed to fill the same role and to do the same thing. They're going to look alike. They're going to perform alike. And the class is going to be named after the first ship in order that is commissioned. So, for instance... We have Nimitz-class aircraft carriers. The reason we call them the Nimitz-class is because the very first ship that was commissioned in that class was the Nimitz. It's it's namesake is is an admiral from World War II that was the, the last admiral to ever carry the rank of fleet admiral. And so... We've got like nine or ten of them, I think. Ten, I think. Ten. We've got ten of these things. 
And they're all of the same class and they all have particular abilities that they can do that nothing else can do. And they've got all sorts of names, not all of them, but most of them are names after presidents like Washington and Truman and Roosevelt. There's the Vincent as well. And there's a whole list of these things, right? And they can do things that that no other class of ship that we have does. They're the only ones. And so there are certain needs that you could have in the theater of conflict that only a Nimitz can address. And so think about it this way. You've, you, you've got, your, you, you, you've got your, your, your brass on scene and they are considering a regional conflict that is about to explode into war. And they know that they're going to have to be able to project a certain amount of power if they're, having, if they're going to have any hope of having a positive outcome in this situation. And so they're communicating back and forth with the brass in Washington, D.C., and they say something along the lines of this, the only thing that will work is Nimitz. i got to have it. i got to have it. That's what we have to have. Nothing else will suffice. Nothing else will fill the role. Nothing else will do. We have to have the Nimitz. And the brass in Washington goes, no problem. You'll get Nimitz. The Truman's four days away. He gifts, he apportions as he will, particularly, generally to gifting, specifically to office, specifically within the office. Everybody was telling the truth. When they said, are you Elisha? John said, no, I'm John. And he was telling the truth. And when Jesus, he's like, is that the Nimitz? No, that's the Truman. Yeah, it's Nimitz. Is, and when Jesus said, he is Elisha, the one who is about to come. He was not making an analogy. He was telling the truth. You know, the guy that got it first, the one that the light bulb came on for this first for, was Elijah's understudy, Elisha. Look in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. This is the day of Elisha being caught up to heaven in the whirlwind. And then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other until the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Let me be twice what you have been gifted to be. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Elisha got it. He understood what made Elijah, Elijah. And it wasn't his flesh and bone. What made him Elijah, as we understand. You know, if it wasn't for the spirit on Elisha, you wouldn't even know who he was. He would just be some dude 
that lived two and a half millennia ago, whose bones rotted and turned to dust thousands of years ago. You wouldn't even know who he was. Elisha knows what makes Elijah Elijah, and it's not Elijah. That's just what his mama called him. He knows what makes him that. It's the spirit that defines him. It's the gifting and the call that God has put on him. And he says, when you're gone, let me be you. And give me double. Elisha got it. And he got it. In verse 11, it says that as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elisha that had fallen from him and he went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. He got it. He got it in his head. And now he's got it. He took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elisha went over Elisha got it, so did John. And so he goes forth. He is Elijah. The same gifting, the same spirit of God that allowed Elijah to be Elijah to do the things that he did to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of heaven to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers and to restore all things before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The same spirit was on Elisha. The same spirit was on John. There have so far been three. One more is yet to come and he is the first. He comes, as Jesus said, for the restoration of all things. Remember when they were coming down from the hill of transfiguration? Matthew 17, 11, Elisha does come and he will restore all things. I guess if you wanted to kind of keep it straight in your mind, you've got Elijah, Elijah. You've got Elisha, Elijah, and John, Elijah. But Elisha, Elijah, he comes. And he comes to restore all things. Friends, this is where we get to the practical application part. I'm almost done. I've only got 10 minutes almost done here's where we get to the practical application part because the fact of the matter is is what scripture says is that restoring all things is some dirty business it is dirty business Elijah coming along with Enoch different sermon coming to restore all things is in Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 14 Revelation chapter 11, John says that I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. 
And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven you go man that's some dirty business and that may be what it takes to restore all things but I don't see anything in there about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children or the hearts of the children to the fathers. I do. What you see here is the $5 term is multiple prophetic aspect. What that means is, is in particular narratives in scripture just like particular narratives in newspapers or magazines or, or, or articles that you read on the internet focus on particular aspects of a multi-faceted event it's the same spirit john is elijah the one who is about to come He is preaching the same things. He is fulfilling the same office. And so in John, you see primarily recorded the people coming to John and their hearts being turned. You also see recorded the way that those who are apart from Christ and not being drawn to Him are provoked by what He says. And you only get a little mention at the end of how because of his ministry, Herod cuts his head off and puts it on a plate at a banquet. In the Revelation, you see Elisha and Enoch. The same ministry, the same mantle, fulfilling the same office, proclaiming these very things. And the focus here is on the vitriol of those that lawlessness that stand against what they say the death is focused upon the way that they die in the streets but you will notice that out of this preaching are those that give glory 
to the God of heaven. Those whose hearts have been turned to their children and whose hearts have been turned to their fathers. Same office, different emphasis in the text. Both turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. Both come with the same message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both are persecuted by the religious establishment that is sold out to lawlessness. Both will die for their ministry. Both will effectively fulfill their office. You know what's so cool is that when John the Baptist was preaching out of this office, even the Gentiles were coming. Even the Gentiles were coming. Just real quick, Luke chapter 3, check this out. Luke chapter 3, verse 17. Or 7, sorry. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a provoking message. But look how they respond. The crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. You know why? This goes with the the, the office of Elisha. Because when he comes in the final manifestation of that office... If you don't have a mark on your hand or forehead, you won't be eating and you won't be buying a tunic. So friends, those that repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, man, if you've got extra, give it to your brother. The tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to. And the soldiers also asked him, The soldiers also asked him. You understand that Israel is an occupied nation of the Roman Empire. There is no Jewish army. The soldiers are Romans. The soldiers also asked him. And we, what shall we do? Where's our place in this thing? Here's this Jewish Messiah, but we see what you're doing. What shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. He was even drawing that the ministry of Elisha even draws the Gentiles in. You talk about provoking Jews to jealousy. It worked. It worked in John's time and it's going to work in the time to come, both will restore all things exactly to where God ordained them to be at his coming. Or as is written in the Revelation, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. And so here's John. 
the office of Elijah, proclaiming from the desert, prepare the way, make straight paths for the Lord. And so that was necessary in John's day with Christ coming in the first advent. It is going to be necessary in Elijah's day to come when Christ is about to come again into the glory of his kingdom. And I would tell you it is necessary for you and me today. Are you making straight his paths? And when I ask that question, I mean it first and foremost, before making straight his paths out there, are you making straight his paths here? In your own heart. Because i got to tell you, guys, both from personal experience with myself and from experience of viewing others, it is easy to say that the path has been made straight when there is no personal cost. But it seems to get awfully convoluted and crooked when there is. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that even displayed in John in a couple of weeks. When they're sharpening the knives to get ready to take his head off, the guy that's out there telling them to prepare the way and make straight paths is having a hard time keeping the path straight. It's easy to say the path is straight when there's no cost. It's awfully convoluted and it gets crooked awfully easily when there is. And we have... The tendency to say stuff like, but what about when confronted with the realities? I mean, you consider, you consider government. I think you have to because it is through government and governance that we see the stress come upon the kingdom of God in the book of Revelation. So, what happens? When that comes. What happens when those that are in control of civil authority and economic authority say it's going to be this way whether the church likes it or not? Well, we know what the ultimate expression of that looks like with the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. But the, but the, but the, um, the epistles of John tell us that the spirit that is going to cause that is already right now currently at work. It's here now working in that direction and building to that crescendo. So what do you do when they take the newfound power that they dabbled with in COVID and use it for a complete shutdown of assembly, including the churches for the next emergency? What do you do? The path seems straight now. Well, we're not going to abandon the gathering of ourselves together. Scripture says not to. Until America looks next time around what Canada looked like last time around and they're actually putting you in cuffs and actually imprisoning you, actually fining you. At that point in time, it gets awfully easy to go, well, but there's all these logical reasons to make the road convoluted. Instead of it just being a straight path, hey, A to B, we don't do this, this is what Scripture says, all of a sudden you find yourself in a place where you're like, well, but, you know... If we get arrested and there's nobody out here to speak and that wouldn't be good, what good does that do us? Besides that, we could take the money that we'd spend on the fine and we could use it to somehow figure out how to spread the gospel more with it. The path gets awfully crooked awful fast. 
What happens when preaching a biblical view of sexuality is elevated to a hate crime? What happens then? Friends, by the letter of the law, that is already the case in parts of this country. It's already here. Don't fool yourself because you live in good old redneck buckle of the Bible Belt, Arkansas. It's already here. It is on the books. How long do you think before they try to enforce it? It's coming. And the laws on the books have teeth in them. They're fines. All sorts of stuff. How long before you think they try to enforce it? What do you do then? Does the path stay straight? Or does it become twisted and winding? What about your marriage? What if you find out your spouse has been unfaithful, even habitually unfaithful? All of a sudden, the perseverance of marriage out of Ephesians chapter 5 that seems so straightforward becomes very convoluted and complex. Or does it? This is what restoring all things looks like. It's dirty business. What happens when it comes down to the point that if you just participate and take this mark, your children won't starve? Well, it's easy for a dusty mind to take a straight path and make it twisted when that's on the line. Don't fool yourself. If we're going to be faithful in that day when everything's on the line, we must first be faithful in little. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 6, verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And friends, I would tell you in closing that obedience through duty will never suffice when the chips are down. When the price is high, obedience through duty will lead invariably to a crooked path. Instead, what is required is obedience through joy. And the joy of Christ and Christ alone is all that will be sufficient to maintain a prepared and straight path for the Lord. And on that note, I will see you at camp. This altar is always open to you. And if you're not the Lord's, today is the day to come. I won't, uh, I won't mince words with you. He's going to require some stuff of you. It's a deal. He's worth every bit.